We're approaching the end of the Tanya. December 3rd, we're still on. Be'ezrat Hashem. A great celebration honoring all of us and honoring the Alter Rebbe. So um, I know it's been a crazy week, but we'll send around the link again. Sign up. It's for men and for women. You can bring your wives. And uh, it'll be a wonderful celebration of Torah study and of commitment and of Hasidus. Excuse my voice, by the way. It's just a post Simcha Torah voice. We... <coughs> they tell a story or a short anecdote of the Baal Shem Tov, that he was once traveling in Germany and he was supposed to be introduced to the local community in a particular city that he visited. And a whole meeting was set up and everybody gathered in the local shul awaiting this great tzaddik's arrival. And he comes to the door of the shul and the rabbi comes out to greet him, opens up the door of the shul and the Baal Tov says, wow, there's so much Torah, so much davening in this shul. I can't come in. There's no room for me. So the rabbi was kind of proud of himself, you know. Yeah, you know, it's true, Rabbi. We have so many classes and minyanim every day. There's so much that we do here. But, you know, of course, you just meant what you said metaphorically because we have a place. There's, there's a bima waiting for you, a table, a place of honor. Come inside. And the Bashem Tov's face turned serious and he said, no, 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 that wasn't a compliment. The Zohar says that when a person learns Torah or prays with feeling, with emotion, with passion, the Torah and Tefillah get wings and they're able to ascend heavenward. But if Torah is studied and prayers are said selfishly, with no feeling and no regard for God, they don't get wings and they stay down here. Your shul, unfortunately, is full of people who are cold and robotic and mechanic in their Judaism in which all their prayer and their Torah stays here. It hasn't ascended. There's no room for me. It's a bit of a morbid anecdote. But it's usually used to bring out the other side. The fact that we have to invest our Yiddishkeit with feeling. This has been our topic for the last few weeks. It's also explored extensively in the last third of book one of the Tanya. Judaism is a religion of action. That's no doubt about that. I was talking about it before. We see it now more than ever. In this time, in the wake of the tragedy in Israel, what have Jews been doing? Jews have been doing action. Nobody asked every Jew who put on tefillin in the last four days how he feels about it, and if he's feeling holy, and if it's... He was doing a mitzvah because it helps another Jew. <clears throat> doesn't matter what you're thinking. The bottom line is what counts. Nevertheless, as the Talmud says, mitzvah below kavanah keguf below neshama. A mitzvah without intent, without feeling, without heart, is like a body without a soul. 
a bird without wings. And we need to attach wings to our birds. We need to invest everything that we do as part of our religious duties with significance, with meaning, and with beauty. And as the Alter Rebbe explains in earlier parts of Tanya, the type of emotion that you put into it will dictate the level to which your mitzvahs will ascend upwards and achieve incredible, incredible things on high. But uh, the other week, Anton asked, actually, that all of this discussion is on the spectrum of positive emotions. Putting in a positive feeling or a positive significance into your mitzvah. But when you say the word emotion, invest my mitzvahs with emotion, you can invest your mitzvahs also with negative stuff. Are those also wings? What, what, what happens there? What happens if somebody is learning Torah or doing a mitzvah for the wrong reasons? An improper motivation. It's no longer robotic. It's no longer mechanic. Now he is filled with life when he's doing the Torah or the mitzvah, but it's maybe a negative type of energy. <coughs> what do we do with that? So that's the topic of tonight's note. We're in the last book of the Tanya. It's not really chapters or a treatise. Book 5 of the Tanya is just handwritten notes that were discovered after the Alter Rebbe's passing that he wrote in cryptic shorthand to resolve different Kabbalistic contradictions that he came across as he was preparing the Tanya. So uh, this one too is written in Kabbalistic code. But the heart of the discussion, the discussion is, <clears throat> what do we do with a mitzvah or with Torah or with prayer that isn't being fed by the most holy or noble of intentions. As an aside, the Alter Rebbe brings it up also in this note. He says, don't confuse this discussion with the fact that everything that a Jew does touches something above. We're taught that even our sins ascend above. In other words, you can influence divine energies in whatever ways, in good ways or in bad ways. You know, again, timely, divine providence, 50 years ago exactly by the Yom Kippur War, the Rebbe held a Fabrengen just three days after the war started. It was the anniversary of passing of one of the Chabad Rebbes, and it was a joyous Fabrengen, and the Rebbe said, how can we be joyous when our brother, brothers and sisters are fighting a war? And he gave a a mystical explanation for it. But part of it was he mentioned a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov on Psalms. It says in Psalms 121, Hashem Tzilcha, Hashem is your shadow. And the Baal Shem Tov said, it doesn't just mean that Hashem is like your shade, you know, He covers you. He's literally your shadow. The same way when you walk on the street, you see your shadow. Whatever you do influences your shadow. In the same way, the way a Jew behaves, God responds in kind. The higher realms are a mirror of the lower realms. When a Jew shows sadness, depression, immobility, laziness, the response from on high is commensurate with that. But when a Jew shows inner joy, resolve, perseverance, hope, a mirror is reflected and those energies come down. 
But therefore, the Rebbe said we should be happy and we should, at the same time as being empathetic, but we shouldn't let it get us down or break us, go into despair. There's a big difference between hurt and despair. Anyway, that's a separate idea. The fact that every act that a Jew does has an influence on high. Here we're talking about an isolated discussion about the Torah and mitzvahs themselves. The deeds that you do and the, and the uh, Torah that you learn and the prayers which you say, in what ways do they or do they not ascend and achieve things that they achieve on your behalf based on the feeling which you put into it. So, the Alter Rebbe says, And if you want to appreciate the full discussion, I'm going to give you a couple of Kabbalistic texts. Okay? Follow along. It's a lot of info, but not so hard. Here's text number one. The Arizal writes, When a person learns Torah without proper intent, still, because he's uttered words of Torah, the verbal energy reverberates and creates angels in the higher realms. Zohar says, no voice is lost. No such thing as a sound wave that's emitted and goes nowhere. Every time you utter a sound, it has an effect. I thought you just think it in your mind. Huh? What if you just think it in your mind but you don't Yeah, he, he, he doesn't address that in this chapter. In chapter 40 of book 1, there's a bit of a discussion on that. Just thinking Torah. And we also touched upon it two weeks ago in note, note number one. It has an effect. Let's, let's call it that. It has some kind of an effect, but not as much as learning verbally. Okay. But the Zohar says that when you learn Torah without proper intent, it doesn't ascend beyond the sun. It stays within this universe. The Zohar is based on a, a verse in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes. Shlomo HaMadach says, Ma yitron la'adam b'chol amalo. What advantage or what purpose does a person have from all his work? Shayamol tachat hashamash. That he works under the sun. So the Zohar says, only a person's work which he does under the sun is in vain. But some work goes over the sun. Like Torah study and prayer, that's over the sun. But then the Zohar says, but if you study Torah without proper intent, it stays under the sun doesn't even leave the universe. So right there we have a contradiction. One piece of the Arizal, the Kabbalah says, Torah without proper intent creates angels. The Zohar says, Torah without proper intent doesn't even leave the universe. Okay. That's one contradiction. Shelve it. Second contradiction. About prayer now, not, not about Torah. The Zohar says, when a person prays, every time we pray, the prayer ascends to the higher hechalot, the higher chambers. At the entrance to the chamber stands a mimuneh. Mimuneh means an appointed angel. And the angel at the gate examines every prayer. If it's a proper prayer, he opens the door. The Zohar is very graphic. It's beautiful. He opens the door and the prayer is allowed in. But if it's improper and the assumption is that improper means it's done without proper intent. The kavana, the feeling in the davening is not correct. 
So the Zohar says, the angel doesn't even open the door. He pushes the prayer out. It goes down and remains afloat in the world. It's the words of the Zohar. And it ends up in the lowest heaven closest to this universe. And there, there's an appointed angel who takes these slotim psilan, it's called in the Zohar, disqualified, unaccepted prayers, and buries them. Until a person does teshuva, and then there's a whole other thing, we'll talk about it soon. Okay? A similar piece of Zohar says, when a person prays if it's proper, the appointed angel and his friends, they kiss the prayer and take the words up with them up on high. But... Uh, if it's not proper, they don't deal with it, and the prayer doesn't ascend. So here, when it comes to prayer without proper intent, we're, we're getting a little middle ground. See, with Torah, there was a contradiction, but it's two opposites. Creating angels, staying in the world. The prayer without kavana seems to be in the middle somewhere. It goes up, it's pushed away, it comes down, it ends up in the lowest heaven. It, it's getting somewhere, but it's not getting there all the way. And Alter Rebbe says that even these two pieces of Zohar about the davening seem to contradict because one says it ends up in the heaven, other one says it doesn't go anywhere. But he says, don't worry. Sometimes the Zohar uses similar words and it means the same concept. Not ascend could mean not ascend as high, but it ascends somewhere. Okay. So we have some Kabbalah conundrums. What do we do with it? How do we resolve it? So the Alter Rebbe says like this. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it the way I best understand it, because, again, it's very cryptic and shorthand. The Alter Rebbe is Kabbalistic language. He says, we're throwing around words loosely. Improper kavana. Improper intent when you study. Improper intent when you pray. We've got to get down to it. What, what, what does it mean to learn Torah with improper intent? Does it mean you don't understand what you're learning? It's like you open up a page of Talmud, you don't really know Hebrew, you just read it, you've learned Torah without proper intent. Is that what it means? No. Because if you're not understanding what you're learning, then you're not learning. That's not learning without proper intent. That's just not learning. I picked up a Chinese book and I read it. You don't say I learned without the right feeling. I just didn't learn. I have no idea what it says here. <coughs> By the way, when it comes to the Torah, the written Torah, there we say there's value even if you don't understand. That's not what he's talking about here. Yeah, that's why when we get an aliyah to the Torah, we, we make a blessing. Typically, you only make a blessing for Torah study when you understand it. Many of us go up to the bima and we have no idea what the guy is reading. First of all, it's Hebrew. There's no vowels. We don't even know the guy's singing some tune. It's, but there's value just to reading the words of the Torah, the, the, the Bible, because they're, they're godly words. You know, there's a custom before, uh, before you get married, on the Shabbat before you get married, to get an aliyah to the Torah. And it says that, you're, that when the groom goes up, he should put a special focus on looking at the letters of the Torah, not even understanding. Because looking at the holy letters is what's going to have an effect on creating the baseline for his home that he wants to found on Torah values. So there's something to be said about pure, unadulterated, godly words flowing into your consciousness. 
without understanding, but that's only in the Torah Shabiktav, the written Torah. We're not dealing with that here. We're talking about learning Jewish law, let's say, or learning Mishnah, or learning Gemara. If you don't understand what you're saying, you're not learning. So learning without proper intent has to be defined differently. And the Alter Rebbe says, for the purposes of answering our questions, we can talk about two types of improper intent. One would be learning Torah for the wrong reasons. An actively negative intent. Talmud has many examples of this with many not nice things to say about such people. A person who learns Torah so he can be called rabbi. A person who learns Torah so people will honor him. A person who learns Torah so they'll call him to the public rallies and give a speech. A person who learns Torah to argue against the rabbis. He wants to learn just to, just to counter. All kinds of things. That's an actively negative energy in your Torah study. If you have an actively negative energy in your Torah study, that's where the Zohar says it doesn't even ascend anywhere. It stays right here in this world under the sun. Because, think about it, it's like it would be the opposite of the bird. That the bird has wings and it can fly upwards. Here, you don't just have a bird without wings. You have a bird with a weight weighing it down. The negative energy is weighing down the power of your Torah study because it's invested with a completely wrong intention. Some birds think that their wings are also weights. You know that, that famous, uh, I don't know where it comes from, maybe it's like some kind of like a parable or an anal analogy they say about this bird that was walking and it felt so small, all these big animals. And they complained to God, how come I'm so small, I can't see anything, I can't do anything, everybody can chase me. So God said, okay, snapped his fingers and whoosh, the bird feels these two heavy things on its side. He goes, God, it starts complaining even more, and he made me more problems. It wasn't enough that I can't see anything, can't do anything, now I have these two massive weights on, my, on the sides of my shoulder. And God says, you know, fool, just, just shake, shake those weights a little bit. And the bird flapped its wings, and lo and behold, it began to fly, and it flies up, and now the elephant that it was so afraid of looks like nothing to it. So they say it's an analogy for, for ourselves. What we think is the weight in our lives. Sometimes the things that we think are holding us down are really our wings to propel us to the next level in life. And instead we complain to Hashem, more weight, you just made me more weight. I thought my life was easy, now you made it even harder. Hashem says, flap the wings. You'll see that it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise you high. <coughs> but with Torah study, if there's a weight, it's holding it down, it can't go anywhere. Okay, but that's an actively negative energy. What if your Torah study doesn't have either? And this happens to me all the time, admittedly. You're learning Torah, you understand what you're saying, but there is no feeling. It's just another day at the office. Just another class, just another YouTube video, just another piece of Rambam. I'm not in love with God, as the Alter Rebbe describes it. I, I, I don't feel a conscious desire to connect to Him and, and, and closeness with Him. But I'm not necessarily learning Torah for a bad reason. I'm just learning Torah. That's the type of improper kavana which the Zohar says that creates angels in the higher realms. Because here there's nothing holding down the Torah study. 
There's no weight counterbalancing your Torah. So if nothing is holding it down, even if you didn't inject it with something to shoot it up, <coughs> but because of the principle that every holy sound never gets lost, never goes nowhere, nowhere, excuse me, the energy that's contained within your Torah study ascends and it creates angels. Maybe it doesn't create angels in the higher, higher realms. We talk about in the Zohar, Berea and Yetzirah, two different worlds. Torah with proper kavana creates angels in Berea. Without proper kavana, angels in Yetzirah. But nevertheless, some kind of effect. And that's why it's important, by the way, to study Torah constantly, even if you're not feeling it. Because there's something to be said about the value inherently of studying Torah. Understand it. Don't just read Chinese. But even if you're not in the mood, every day has to, has to be filled with some kind of Torah. <coughs> the Altar says, even though I don't have clear proof for what I'm saying, but I have, I have an interesting derivation. I can demonstrate this point to you based on something else, another piece of Zohar. And the Talmud says that children are considered to be hevel she'ein bahem chet. They have breath that has no sin. When children study Torah, there's a purity, there's a sincerity about it because they haven't experienced anything negative in their lives. They haven't done anything negative in their lives. They're untainted. <coughs> and the Zohar says that the sincerity of children is equivalent to passion. Just like if I were to insert passion into my Torah, just children studying Torah with their childlike innocence and sincerity is itself the passion. And the angels take this Torah and they put it to the highest, highest of places. So the says, one second. How many kids do you know really study Torah or listen to their teachers with sincerity? Many of the kids that I know study Torah and listen to their teachers in the classroom because if not, there's going to be consequences. And he uses the words fear of the whip because that's what it was in those days. Today, if I said that in the classroom, <laughs> I'm not sure how that would go. But there's always that threat, you know, hanging over the kids. Something, you're going to lose your recess or the activity or I don't know, you'll have to write an assignment or something. The Rebbe was once talking about Febringen and he said, you know, um, in our school, I think he was talking about himself, when he was in school, the teacher used to have the whip just hanging on the wall. <laughs> he never had to use it, but it was just there. And that was enough. <coughs> so the argument could be made, says the Alter Rebbe, that there's no real sincerity. Of course, there's, there's innocence and there's, you know, being naive and, and, and unaware of all the complexities and difficulties of the world. But isn't it, you know, not so simple to say that it's always sincerity guiding them? Sphere of the whip? Other motivations? So Altair says it's true. And nevertheless, the Zohar says what it says. In other words, even if we know that the child is having a different reason for studying good and passing his test. Nevertheless, because he's a child, by nature of the childlike innocence that he has, the angels take it and treat it in the highest of ways. So certainly if an adult studies Torah with no particular intent, not good nor bad, it should certainly have some kind of merit to it. So that's the, that's the spiel on Torah.
What about davening? What is improper intent by davening? So here the Alter makes a very interesting proposition. I'll have to hear what you guys think about it. He says, with Torah, it's possible to study Torah with no particular intent. It's just academics, neither here nor there. No positive godly, holy motivation, no negative, selfish, egotistical motivation. But with davening, it's impossible to daven casually. It's impossible to daven with no particular intent. Why? Because davening is meeting God. So, at least those words, meeting God, has to be somewhere in your consciousness. <clears throat> he says, maximum what could happen is you start off right and then you trail off. Okay, that could happen. You know, you, it's like you came to shul, you put on your talis and tefillin, or you opened up the sitter. Just in that act, there's something, there's got to be something worth redeeming there because otherwise, why did you come to do this act? You did it. That there's something inherently godly about it. And then what happens? Okay. Then you open up the sitter and the stock market starts coming in and the real estate business and all the other things take up our, our, our mind space. You know, the, uh, the verse in Tehillim, it says, Elev arechev ve'elev asusim ve'anachnu b'shem Hashem alokeinu nazkir. These ones come with their chariots. These ones come with their horses. We, we come with the name of God. Psalm 20. So literally it means that our power is infinite. Other nations come with limited power. We come with infinite power. There was a Hasidic teacher who used to make a joke. He used to say, other people, in order to travel far away, they need, they need chariots and horses. A Jew, all he used to say is God's name, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and his mind is in other countries. That's all we need. We get distracted in a half a second. But no matter what, even if you trail off, <coughs> While those distracted thoughts or maybe even improper thoughts or whatever may become a weight onto the words of your prayer, but they can never undo that initial setup of I'm creating a space where I can unite with God. Even if literally five seconds later you leave that space, but there was, there was a five second period where you said that to yourself in some form or another. And therefore, it ascends to a place even higher than the Torah with no particular intent because davening can never be done with no particular intent. And it's reflected also, interestingly, in the repair, in the repair work. The same Zohar that talks about not ascending or only ascending to lower places says that there is redemption. If you learn Torah with no particular intent, and then you relearn the same piece of Torah with a godly intent, it redeems also the first time around, and it brings everything to the highest places. But with davening, there's no such requirement. You don't have to re-daven the same davening to redeem all the non-proper thoughts that you may have had during davening. All you have to do, is a very interesting piece here, all you have to do is have a cumulative one davening throughout the year. If you can accumulate an entire davening from all of your year's prayers that were done with proper intent, that all comes together 
and takes with it all the davenings of the whole year. They say the Alter Rebbe's Hasidim, there was a, a line that used to go around, the Alter Rebbe's followers, they used to make a fold in their sitter. And the meaning was that every day they would focus on a different paragraph. So one day they would focus on the first five lines of Hodu, you know, right at the beginning paragraph. Then they make a little fold, okay, that's where we got to. And the next day, they would still daven the whole davening, but their focus was on the next five lines. And then throughout the year, you have an entire shacharit, an entire prayer done with, you know, heartfelt intention. And so it takes everything with it. <coughs> By the way, the, the Zohar that I actually quoted before, where the angel pushes it out the door and it floats in the world and it goes all the way down, the end of the Zohar is that the, 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 these disqualified prayers are buried till the person prays in, in a proper way and then the improper prayer combines with the proper prayer, they fuse into one, that's the word of the Zohar, and they all ascend. So an annual, an annual good davening redeems it all. Good to know, right? Just in case, one day the davening doesn't go so well, or two days the davening doesn't go so well, you know. Next day you have a chance, do another paragraph. What would you do? Do one day well and they'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what the Jews are doing on Yom Kippur. They're coming for the, you know, the one day, they pray properly, and that's it, we don't see them again. <laughs> that's the Misa. Don't go to the other side of the pendulum. You go to the opposite extreme of actively negative intentions, that does weigh down. But so long as you're parev, you're not here nor there, there is redemption. It ascends not to the highest places, but to some, some kind of realm, it has an effect. And on the topic of praying with intent, I want to conclude with a, a beautiful story of the Magid of Mezrich, the Alter Rebbe's teacher. The Alter Rebbe's teacher grew up not with Chassidus. People don't know it. The Mezutra Magid came later in his life to the Val Shem Tov. Originally, he was a tremendous Talmudic genius. And um, a great, great Torah giant. But he only came to the Val Shem Tov later in life. Yet, even before his discovery of Hasidism, he was a great Kabbalist. He was a great mystic. And he had a friend who was also his study partner. And what they did is they wouldn't just study Talmud. They also studied mysticism. They studied the works of the Arizal. And they tried to pray every day with the intentions that the Arizal describes in his books. And they would do like a, a kind of a partnership. It was very interesting. Imagine you wake up in the morning and you have a little study session with a guy and then you both go to pray together, kind of both trying to meditate on the same things that day. And then they would come out of the davening together, they would eat a little bit, they would learn the rest of the day. Anyway, they parted ways after a while. The Alter Rebbe discovered, the Magid discovered Hasidism, went to the Baal and after a number of years, they met up again. And they said, you know what? It would be nice to, to renew our custom. Why don't we, in the morning, delve into the Arizal's writings, and then we'll dive in together, and then we'll learn. We'll do like, you know, a day like it used to be. Sure. So they wake up in the morning, they learn the Arizal's Kabbalistic meditations for davening. And then they go to daven. And here, 
two, three hours later, the study partner is done davening, and the Magid is still in the middle. Four hours, five hours, six hours, he comes out of his prayers. And only then they started to learn Talmud and whatever. So the study partner said, I don't understand. <coughs> we, both, we both learned from the same place. Like the, we both had the same meditations. How come now it took me two hours and you it took four or five hours? So the Magid said, what do you do for business? What do you do to make a living? <coughs> so he said, like many Torah giants of the day, they actually engaged also in, in a physical work. They, they, they had to, you know, to make a living. He said, I, I, I'm in charge of lumber. What I do is I have a couple of areas in the forest in my local city. And every year when they chop the wood, <coughs> I build, you know, I take all the, all, the, all the lumber, put it all together, and then I transfer it to Leipzig, the proverbial market town. I take it to Leipzig, to the big fair, and then I have to sell it, and it takes a few months until I sell out all my, all my stock, and then I see how much, you know, my expenses and my profits, and I come back home, and hopefully I have enough money to last me for the next couple of months till the, uh, the business begins again. So the Magad says, I don't understand. Such a hassle. They chop the wood, take it on the wagons, go to Leipzig, sell it, sit there, haggle and bargain until you make money and come back. And make... Why don't you just sit on your couch, close your eyes, and visualize the whole process. Imagine yourself going to the forest, imagine yourself cutting down the wood, Imagine yourself gathering the wood. Imagine yourself putting it on the wagons. Imagine yourself transferring it to Leipzig. Imagine yourself selling it. Imagine yourself bargaining. Imagine yourself making money. Imagine... In 20 minutes, you've done the whole job. You're back on your couch. You can continue living like you should. What do you need the whole thing? Four or five months you're spending on the road. So the guy looks at the Magid like, you gone crazy? He said in Yiddish. I'm not going to have the merchandise. The Magid said, aha, that's the difference between you and me. After I discovered Hasidic thought, when I meditate on the intentions of the Arizal, I'm traveling to Leipzig. For you, it's just a visualization. You don't enter the reality. So you go in, you come out, in two hours you're finished. I have to have the schayra, I have to have the merchandise. So it takes much longer. I have to travel, go, immerse myself, come back. That's a whole other thing. We're not davening for five, six hours, okay? <coughs> but it does tell us about the level to which we have to approach our prayer with more seriousness. Because we are traveling in some form or another. There is a journey taking place. We're meeting Hashem. We're trying to connect with Him, to start our day the right way. So we should approach it in that sense. Know that we're going on a journey. And we can't just sit on our couch and visualize it. We have to have the merchandise. And then when we have the merchandise, we can come back home and live our lives as Jews. So that's the call of the hour. Study Torah, pray. Put your heart into it if you can. But even if you can't, know that there's, an, there's, there's influence on high. There's things that are taking place. And do your best, even if it's a fold in the sitter one paragraph each day, throughout the year you dive in properly well, you'll have the merchandise in the end. L'chaim. L'chaim.
Bye.